my goodness. I told Gretchen a minute ago, I said, if it's a good introduction, check's in the mail. I said, if it's bad, I know what car you drive. (laughs) Check's in the mail. (laughs) Uh, this, This sounded really good six months ago. Come out to Colorado for the weekend. Yeah, sure. An hour ago, I was looking for a way out. And, uh, but that, I know that's, that's supposed to happen. Um, my name is Sissy Country, and I'm an Illinois from Alabama. Uh, that's why they give me a badge. Not so much so you know me, but so I don't forget who I am. My home group is the Tuscaloosa Al-Anon family group located in Tuscaloosa, Alabama, right right, real close to the University of Alabama. Roll tight, Edith. Roll tight! <laughs> <laughs> um, and on August the 13th of this year, those that Alcoholics Anonymous group and that Al-Anon group will celebrate 56 years in this program. And for that, yes, I'm truly grateful. I haven't been around that long, but they want me to just really kiss this thing, don't they? (laughs) It's a couple of things that, um, thank you for that audio. A couple of things I need to cover before I get started into why I'm here. Um... First of all, the invitation to come out here. Thank you so much. Um, a lot of you have come to me and told me that my dad was here two years ago, Bo. There's, yeah, that rumor's floating around. And um, he still talks about this convention. He still has just great, wonderful things to say about this place. And so it's, it's a great honor to be out here. Um, but I want to tell you that, uh, you know, I'm from the South deep south and we we tend to know a thing or two about hospitality and about how to treat people how to take care of people but i'm here to tell you that when i get home sunday uh they're going to learn a few things about what colorado's got going on um, bob and i've had the good fortune of going to a lot of places and uh it's I can't remember a time when I have been treated with such graciousness and such honesty and such welcomeness as I have here. And you should be really, really proud of that. It reflects all of you tremendously. So thank you for that. Um, I'm terrible on names. I'm good to remember myself. But those of you that have had an impact on me this weekend, uh, the list goes on and on. Um, and, and it's been remarkable. When we walked into the room on yesterday, the neatest little gift sitting there, so practical, it was a cooler full of water and snacks. All I've heard is drink water, drink water, drink water. <laughs> and so, and, and it's what a nice, nice, wonderful gift to walk in and see that. And it was all ice cold and, and uh, sitting there waiting on us. And so I want to thank the committee for, uh, for that added little bonus. Uh, when, I, when I come to share my experience, strength, and hope, it affects me physically. Um, like I said earlier, about an hour and a half ago, I wanted to run. 
And I know that's a good thing for me because uh, my sponsor told me years ago, if, if you get up there and, it, and you're sharing from your head, you don't need to be up there. And if you don't feel like you could throw up, then you're not sharing from your heart. <laughs> so the nerves are, are with me tonight, and I hope to work through those very soon. There's a couple of things I bring with me when I share just to calm me down and make me feel a little more centralized. I bring a watch. I won't look at it. But it makes me feel good to know it's sitting there. I bring my book, my Courage to Change book. I have a lot of stuff in here. I won't use it. But it, again, I like to look down and see it and know it's there. But the thing that I bring that I will use tonight, and I do not have enough to go around, is Kleenex. Sorry I didn't bring enough. Uh, because I learned a long time ago that um, when I get to sharing and I talk, that I will cry. And I used to have a real problem with that. I didn't want anybody to see me cry. I thought that was that meant I couldn't handle it, that I didn't have it together, and I was weak. And I had been in the program for a little while, and a seasoned veteran member of Alcoholics Anonymous. We don't call them old-timers where we come from. We call them seasoned veterans. They like that. That's those folks that have been sober since dirt, you know. Seasoned veterans. He came up to me one time after a meeting and he said, you know, you got to let go of this hang-up you have about crying in front of everybody. He said, don't you know the more you cry, the less you pee? <laughs> and it never occurred to me. No. But at that moment, I was able to let go of my hang-up about crying in front of you. And so I just take Kleenex with me wherever I go. <clears throat> and that bit about more you cry, the less you pee is not true. <laughs> well, I need to clarify that. I had a lady come up to me after I spoke one time. She was quite upset. She said, you lied. <laughs> so what did I lie about? She said, that bit about the more you cry, the less you pee, that's not true. I said, I know it's not true. <laughs> Wasn't meant to be true. And she said, well... I've waited all weekend for that to kick in, and it hasn't happened yet. I told her to go talk to her sponsor. I didn't know what else to tell her. So don't come to me this weekend and tell me anything about <laughs> anything about that. I am here to share with you what it was like, what happened, and hopefully how Al-Anon has put me on the road to recovery. My serenity date... It's important to me. It's not the date that I became serene. It's the date the process began. September the 4th, 1982. Uh, today is my mother's 23rd birthday in Alcoholics Anonymous. Yeah. And I've, been, I've had her on my mind all day today. Because um, I never want to forget how grateful I am for her sobriety. I never want to forget how hard she works to keep her sobriety. And uh, 23 years today is just as important to me as when she celebrated her six months. I'm just as proud. Just as proud. Um, so today is a special day. And I wanted to share that with you. I grew up 
in a little town in Alabama known for one thing, stock car racing. <laughs> a little town called Hueytown, and that's what put us on the map. Anybody in here is a NASCAR fan knows about Hueytown, Alabama. And we lived on a little street in Hueytown, Alabama, um, in an area, in a neighborhood where you could leave your doors open, leave your doors unlocked. Kids could play outside till 10 o'clock under the street light. You knew everybody that lived on the street. You went in each other's houses. Uh, All-American neighborhood. On the outside, we looked like the All-American family. Two parents, two kids. I think we had a dog. Um, and on the outside, if you, if you saw us, we looked like the All-American family. Had an older brother, Mike, 17 months older than me. In my opinion, he had all the answers. Older brothers always either had all the answers or would make up one. <laughs> you know. And, um, and my mother worked. And Mike and I went to school half a block down the road. And my dad worked. And we had stuff. And we looked like we had it together. And, um, but my mother drank. And uh, she drank in her kitchen on 28th Avenue in Hueytown, Alabama. She's a kitchen alcoholic. We call her our little Wynette. <laughs> you know, you call the men winos and you call the ladies Wynettes. And she was our little Wynette. And, um, you know, it was alcoholism, the active phase of the disease was pretty quick and dirty in our family. Um, I don't remember it lasting a whole long time. Um, my earliest memories of my mother drinking was probably when I was uh, eight or nine years old. And I can tell you that uh, those memories involved her role and my role reversing very quickly. I became the mother and she became the daughter. Because you see, she would stop on the way home from work at the little uh, grocery store and they sold what she needed and she could buy a loaf of bread and a half a gallon of milk and whatever she needed to get through the night. And she'd come home and she'd start to fix dinner and halfway through fixing dinner, my mom would just kind of fall out. I didn't know she was passing out. I just knew she fell out. And we didn't talk about it. We just kind of acknowledged that mom was falling out somewhere and we might cover her up and go right on with what we were doing. You know, she might make it to the bed. She might make it to the couch. Sometimes she stayed right there on the floor. But this happened pretty routinely. Um, we didn't have any physical violence in our family in the active part of the disease. But we had a lot of uh, silence. I grew up in a lot of silence. I grew up in a family that had an unwritten rule, and that was if you couldn't say anything nice about somebody, don't say anything at all. So we just didn't talk. <laughs> we just didn't talk. We would go days without talking. And, um, yeah, we, looking back on it, it's like watching an old movie, but I, I can see immediately where we paired off in teams. Everything around our family centered around sports. My father was a semi-pro softball pitcher, and my brother and I were both very active in baseball and softball. And so uh, 
I can look back and I can see where we absolutely divided into teams. My brother was on my mom's side. He did not like to see my mother get in trouble. He did not like to see her called upon for her drinking. He did not like to see her get in any kind of consequence for what was going on. And I did. Um, I was my dad's little informant. I took that role on real early. Because he could slip me $5 and I'd tell him anything he wanted to know. And if that wasn't what he wanted to know, I'd make something up. This is, this is me at age nine, you know, eight, nine, ten years old. I'm doing these things. And, uh, of course, I would immediately go to my mom and I would say he wouldn't give me any money. And I would, you know, double dip. Because I knew they wouldn't talk. They weren't going to figure it out. Um, but I was my dad's little informant. He could call. He could call me before you came home from work and find out what kind of shape the house was in, what kind of shape mom was in, really. And he would base that on whether or not he was going to come home from work. Because um, he might just stop by the ballpark or stop by and hang out with some of his friends and come on home a couple hours later. He figured that out real quick. Um, my brother had a motorcycle, a little dirt bike, and he could get on his dirt bike and he could be gone. You know, And I just somehow felt the need to be there. Um, and so I stayed. I was there with her through a lot of her drinking. And like I told you earlier, the roles between my mother and I reversed. She became the daughter and I became the, the mother. My mother tried every way possible to teach her young daughter things that young daughters need to learn from their mother. Um, simple things. Uh, and I was real resistant to learning those things. Uh, if she told me to clean my room, I would threaten to tell Dad how much she'd been drinking. So I didn't have to clean my room. If she wanted me to do something around the house, I would just threaten her to tell Dad how much she'd been drinking, what she'd been doing, about the phone calls that had come to the house, and she backed off real quick. So I learned to manipulate my mom pretty quick through the disease of alcoholism. And I still hear people today say that their drinking only affected them. I'm going to share with you a few things of how my mom's drinking affected me. Um, my brother and I eventually got to the point where we couldn't be in the same room with each other without physically fighting. Uh, we went to the same school, had the same last name, was one grade apart, and we would swear to you that we were not related because uh, we didn't want to know one another. We couldn't be in the same room without just physically hitting each other. Uh, the only relationship I had with my father was to be his informant and make a few dollars off of him. Other than that, we had no relationship. And the relationship between my mother and I was deteriorating every day. I would lay awake at night and I would pray that they would divorce. And I would lay there and try to figure out, who do I want to live with? And uh, because the question I was trying to answer was, who could I get the most from? You know, if I lived with her, hmm, what kind of life would that be? I'd have a lot of freedom. But, you know, and I would weigh these things out, and I would eventually just cry myself to sleep every single night because I could not find a way to get my mom to stop drinking. I was a straight-A student, made the honor roll, was in all these advanced classes. That didn't make my mom stop drinking. My brother, on the other hand, was failing. Couldn't pass the grade he was in. That didn't stop my mom from drinking. Um, 
I threatened to run away. She offered to pack a lunch. You know, <laughs> all kind of things. And we were running around living four different lives under this roof, going in four different directions. And what we were doing was we were sending messages to one another. We used to have a uh, witch hunt that I thoroughly enjoyed, looked forward to on a nightly basis. When my dad would finally come home, my mom would be passed out. And uh, this is what we would do. How insane is this? My dad would gather the two kids. We'd go into the kitchen. And he would stand at the door and say, go. And Mike and I would tear through the kitchen and find every bit of alcohol that we could find. It was like a game. And the minute we found one, that's the only time we got along. We would high-five one another and we'd slam that bottle up on the counter. And we'd go back looking for more. And eventually we'd clean the entire kitchen out and lined up all these bottles along the kitchen counter. And we're dancing around and we're high-fiving each other. Saying, look at this, look at all this. I found more than you, you know. And very ceremoniously, my father would walk over to the sink and he would pour each bottle out. And he'd slam that empty bottle up on the counter. And I would just stand there and go, wow, she's going to get it tomorrow. <laughs> she's going she's gonna to wake up and she's going to see all these empty bottles and she's going to think, oh my God, I'm busted, I must stop drinking. I really believe that. I really believe that. And it was years in sobriety, years in sobriety, when my mother acknowledged that every morning she would get up and see these empty bottles lined up down the counter, and her first thought was, oh my God, I got up and drank it all. <laughs> we are so sick, we can't even get a message. You know, we're sending messages and we can't even get that right. Can't even get that right. Um... Of course, it goes along with everything else. You never have anybody over at the house. You come home from school and there's a big slip on the door that says the power's been cut off or the water's been cut off. And you just can't find a rock big enough to crawl under. You know, but at the same time, my mom was real popular with all my friends. Real popular. She was always the team mother. She was always the room mother. She was always signing up to do these things. And my friends just loved her. They just couldn't believe any of this was going on. And we would be at ball practice, softball practice, and most team mothers would drive up with the Gatorade and the cookies and pull up at the ballpark and drop the tailgate, and, you know, and the kids would just go crazy. My mom drives across left field <laughs> after she's had a little bit. And she'd run out of gas right before she'd get to the end, you know, things like that. And... Uh, and I would drive myself crazy trying to figure out a way to make my mom stop drinking. And I just couldn't do it. Uh, but we looked very good on the outside. If you looked at us, we looked like we had it all together. If you walked down our street at night, you would see everybody's big front doors. In the south, we have these storm doors, and then we have the big oak door, the wood door. And you would see everybody's big door open, and you could see into their living room, and the drapes would be open, and you could see into their den, you know. And you walk by our house, and the drapes are pulled, and the door is shut. Because we don't want you to know what's going on. I can never remember the house ever being open. It was always closed and dark, and, and, and we would be very careful about who we went to the door for. Um, that's what alcoholism did to us. I want to tell you about my bottom. 
I was probably 12 and a half years old. 12 and a half years old. And I want to share with you what happened to me. My mother came into the living room one night and literally asked permission to go to the store. That's where she and I were. She had to ask permission to do things. And based on where I was spiritually at the time (laughs) was whether or not she did it. And she came into the living room one night and asked for permission to go to the store. And I, I think I was feeling pretty generous. And I said, sure, go. Twelve and a half years old. And um, she got in her car and she left. And the store wasn't far from the house. I mean, we lived in suburbia and the store wasn't far. She should have been there and back in a good 20 minutes. And she wasn't. Then I got scared. And I started thinking to myself, did she take luggage out of here? Did she finally leave? I went and checked the closets. No, she didn't carry anything out with her. Then I got to thinking about Dead Man's Curve over by the high school and how many times I'd lay in bed at night and just kind of prayed that, you know, if she would just kind of die off, then everything would be all right because she's not going to quit drinking. And then I started thinking about Dead Man's Curve, and I thought, I wonder if she finally drove her car off the cliff. But anyway, I was getting scared, and it was rolling into an hour, an hour and a half, and she still wasn't home, and I found myself out in the front yard. And it was a quiet night, not many people out, no one was out. I found myself out in the front yard, and I didn't know what to do. I just was walking around in circles, and I was just thinking to myself, what has she done? What has she done this time? And the next thought that came to me was, I needed to pray. Sissy, you need to pray. And then I realized I didn't know how to pray. I didn't know how to pray. The only way that I knew how to pray was um, from watching an example maybe I saw on TV. I wasn't raised in the church. The only time I went to church was when the youth group was going to Six Flags or the beach. (laughs) And you had to go to so many youth group services in order to qualify for the trip. And I would do that. And then, you know, after the trip, I wouldn't go back. But I had zero uh, relationship with any kind of God. Um, my concept of God at that time was that someone sat up there with a, with a lit, you know, with a piece of paper. And when Sissy did something good, she got a check. And when Sissy did something bad, she got a check. And when I died, whichever list had more checks was pretty much where I was going. And I knew which list had the checks at that point in my life. But I I kept thinking to myself, you need to pray about this. You need to pray. And I didn't know how to pray. The only thing I knew to do was to drop to my knees, put my hands together, close my eyes, and look upward. And I said something like, Dear God, if you'll just bring her home safe, if you'll just bring her home safe, I promise, God, I'll never talk to my mother like that again. I'll never call my mother those names. I'll never use that language with her I promise, God, if you'll just bring her home safe, I will be the best daughter in the world. I will treat her right. And I was sincere. I was really sincere about this. And I finished that prayer up with something like, Okay, God, thank you very much. Sincerely, sissy. And I opened my eyes and I got up off my knees and I looked around and nothing had changed. And I thought, What a bunch of crap. That doesn't work. What a bunch of crap. 
And I still found myself there in the front yard. And a few minutes later, my mom pulls into the driveway. I see headlights coming into the driveway. And she pulls into the driveway. Before she can turn the engine off, I'm over at the car door. She's got her window down. And I just made what I thought to be this very sincere prayer. And at the same time, I'm 12 and a half years old, I'm reaching into the car window before my mom can even shut the engine off. And I had my hands around my mother's neck of her shirt. And I'm literally trying to pull her out of the car window saying, if you ever do this to me again, I'll kill you. If you ever put me through this again, I will kill you. And if you'd have tapped me on the shoulder at that moment and said, hey, sissy, how's it going? You know what I'd have done? Well, I would have straightened up and I'd have put that smile on and I'd have looked at you and I'd have said, everything's just fine. Thanks for asking. And people say that drinking doesn't affect the kids. And that was me at 12 and a half years old. Absolutely insane from this thing. Absolutely insane. I don't remember much of what happened after that. I remember going back into the house. It seems like a few days later, it could have been months later, that my mother met me at the front door when I came in from a ball game, and she said, I've decided to call a treatment center and do something about my drinking. Well, how many times have I heard that? You know, it just was words falling on deaf ears. But I knew something was up the next day. Because this treatment center called back and they said, Shirley, we'd really like to help you, but we need more than your Sears credit card number. I knew she'd talk to somebody. And I knew they didn't take Sears credit card number. So next thing I know is we find out, we get this formal announcement from my mom and dad that my mother's going to treatment. Okay. I didn't know what treatment was. So I went to the only person in my life at that time that had the answers. And that was my older brother, Mike. Because like I said, if he didn't know, he'd make it up. And I went to him and I said, what is this treatment that mother's going to? And he said, well, it's real simple. He said, it's like taking your car in for an oil change. (laughs) So he said, he said, you know, they'll give her a shot, a pill, something. She'll be fine. She won't drink. Everything will be all right. And I'm thinking, why did she do this years ago? (laughs) You know, what what took her so long? I was all for the pill, the shot, the oil change. Let's get her in there and get her whole transmission fixed, you know? (laughs) So um, we leave, I think, on a Thursday morning in the summer. This is in the summertime. I'm 13. My brother's 15. And you got to picture this for a minute. We have a Chevy pickup truck. (laughs) And in the back of this truck, there's two lounge chairs. (laughs) Lounge chairs, the kind that your feet lay out on. And in the middle of these two lounge chairs is a cooler of Pepsi and the biggest, baddest radio system that you can find. Big old box, boom box, sitting right on top of this cooler. And Mike and I are in the back of the pickup truck. My dad's driving. My mom's got her little suitcase and a curling iron. A curling iron. (laughs) She gets in the front of the pickup truck and off we go to treatment. 
We look like we're going to the beach. Yeah? <laughs> Absolutely insane. We look like we're going to the beach. My brother even got up early that morning and went to Hardee's and got everybody a biscuit. <laughs> so, you know, we would we would have eaten before we get it. So we're taking my mom to treatment. And it's about it's about 70 miles from the house, and it's interstate, and we're, you know, Mike and I are popping Pepsis and got the radio going, and my mom's sitting in the front of this pickup truck with clutching her suitcase and her curling iron. And I'm thinking she's probably a little nervous, you know. She's fixing to get this shot or this pill, and she's probably a little nervous. And uh, the, back, the pickup truck had this sliding window that you could... You know, I'm thinking, poke your head in and talk to them. And uh, we, we're going from a wet county into a dry county. And I happened to see this big sign off the side of the, off the interstate that said, Last Chance Beverages. <laughs> well, in my mind, I'm thinking if you're going to give it up, you should give it up with a bang. Go out with a bang, you know. And uh, so I poked my head through the cab of this truck. And I found out real quick why she was carrying that curling iron. Because I suggested to her very nicely, I thought, that we may pull off so she could have one for the road. She wasn't interested in that. She came at me with that curling iron. And uh, needless to say, we didn't stop so she could have one more for the road. We get her up to this treatment center and we drop her off. Yeah, drop her off. I don't think Mike and I got out of the truck. We just kind of waves. We'll see you later. <laughs> and this was cutting into our summertime, you know. Let's, let's get this going. And uh, we drop her off, and she's standing at this big plate glass window. She got her little suitcase and her car iron. She's waving. And Mike and I are in the back of this truck. We're, we're driving away, and it's like a sad movie. We're getting further and further apart, and we're waving. And she's waving, and we're drinking Pepsi and got the radio on, and we've dropped Mom off at treatment. And I thought, well, they'll fix her. You know, I literally believed they would just fix her, and when she came home, she would not drink anymore, and everything would be okay. Because uh, I had that same belief. If she would just stop drinking, my life would be fine. And we ended up back home on that day, and my father looked at me. A lot of you know my father. He looked at me, looked down at me, and he said, What's for dinner? Well, you kind of have an idea of what I was like at that age, but I kind of said something like, oh, you know, I don't cook. I don't know. And uh, he got me in there and got me cooking real quick. My life changed the moment my mother went into treatment. <laughs> um, I think I got my first resentment was uh, because I had the house all of a sudden. And my mother's gone to this treatment center, and they're supposed to keep her 28 days, and they keep her 38 thought she needed a little more transmission work than other people. <laughs> but we fall into this routine of, uh, you know, doing the house and cooking and the cleaning and all this. And it's an absolute wonder that the three of us did not burn the house down and just die while my mother was gone. I never realized how valuable she was to our family until she's not there. Because it's an absolute wonder we just didn't die of starvation or burn the house down. I don't know how we survived. Because you certainly don't pick up the phone and call and say, my loved one's in treatment, would you come cook for us? You don't tell people that. You just survive and get through it.
And um, sometime during this during this time, my mother would get she got permission for phone calls. And it was real funny. We spent all these years not talking to one another, and all of a sudden she gets two minutes to call home during the week. And if you called on that particular night and it was supposed to be her, we'd just hang up on you. There's three of us in the house. There's five phones. That phone would ring. And if it wasn't her, we'd just hang up on you because we're waiting to hear from Mom, find out what they're doing to her in treatment. You know, we wanted to know. All of a sudden, we all had something to say to one another. And somewhere in the middle of her treatment, my dad sat my brother and I down and said, we're going to spend some time at the treatment center with your mom. It's called Family Week. And my first thought was I needed a break from this house. So Mike and I, we packed our swimsuits and our shorts, (laughs) collected all the quarters we could find for the video, you know, for the arcade, got all of our toys together so we could go up there and have a vacation. And um, the very first thing they did was, was they put me in a room. I used to say with a strange lady. She may not have been strange. I didn't know her. She was strange to me. And they had no TVs. They had fruit and water. No soda machines. No vending machines. I was absolutely in hell. And I told them they should rename their family week to Hell Week. <laughs> And we had things like therapy, seven and eight hours a day. We were supposed to be learning about this thing called alcoholism, and I just really didn't care, you know, that already upset me because of my accommodations. And so I tuned them out pretty much. Um, you could, they referred to, your, to, the, to their patients, they referred to them as your loved one, my loved one. And we would sit in these groups for hours on end, and I uh, couldn't wait to escape. I know today that I heard some stuff. I know today that some of it sank in. Um, but I can remember one, one session in particular where the they had us sitting across the circle from our loved one. And the counselor came and stood behind me. You know, when someone's standing behind you, you can feel them. You know they're there. And he, he leaned down and he whispered in my ear. He said, Sissy, I want you to look across at your mom, at your loved one, and I want you to tell me something that you don't like about it when your mom drinks. And then the next thing I heard was, whoa, 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 just, just one thing. <laughs> and then he did very nicely. He said, now I want you to tell me something that you like about your mom. Come on, sissy. One thing you like about your mom. Come on, you can do it. I don't even know what I said. But he walked away, and I thought I passed the test. And he walked away from me, and he walked right around the room to my mother, and he stood behind my mother, and he leaned down, and he said, Shirley, I want you to look across the room at your daughter. He said, tell me something you don't like about your daughter. Next thing I heard was, whoa, 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 Shirley, just one thing. And that got my attention. And then he said, I want you to tell me something you like about your daughter. And I don't remember what she said, but she said something, and he walked away, and I thought she passed. And it doesn't seem like too long after that. Family week ended. We must have graduated because they let us go home. And a few weeks later, they called and said, she's she's ready to come home. Come get her. And uh, we went up there in the same manner that we picked my mom up in the pickup truck to get her from treatment. But something was different this time. Before we left that treatment center, the counselor pulled us in the office, sat us down, and said this. That surely if you have any chance of staying sober, you will go to Alcoholics Anonymous. 
Bo, if you're going to have any sanity in your life, you will go to Al-Anon. And if the two of you are going to be any parents to these two teenagers, you will get them involved in Alatine. She didn't say, we strongly suggest or we'd really like for you to try it. She said, Shirley, if you're going to stay sober, you will go to Alcoholics Anonymous, period. And so we put my mom in that pickup truck and we drove back down the interstate. We didn't even stop at our house. This was a Saturday in September. And we didn't even stop at our house. We went straight through Hueytown and ended up on the other side of Hueytown in the city of Bessemer. We pulled up in the parking lot of this building. been by this building a million times in my life. It's a brick building. It sits a little off the road. It's got two letters on the front of it, AA. And I always thought it stood for American Airlines. <laughs> and that they only worked at night. That's the only time you ever saw anybody there. And we pulled up into this parking lot and somebody said something that has stayed with me for 20, almost 23 years now. And that's get in the car. Get in the car. Get out of your car and get into our car. And that's what we did. We got out of our car, we got into their car, and we drove 30 miles or so down the road to a town called Tuscaloosa who was celebrating an anniversary that weekend. Happens to be our home group now. And on the University of Alabama campus, they had rented out this huge building. And there were about 600 of y'all there. And we walked into this room, and there were tables, and there was food, and there was all these people. There were so many of y'all there. And I never felt more genuinely welcomed than I had at any time in my life. I knew it instantly. I thought to myself, what do these people have? It was that powerful for all four of us. We just looked at each other. And there's a couple of things I remember from that anniversary. A lady got up. She was their speaker. She got up and she said, Hi, my name is so-and-so and I'm an alcoholic. And I remember elbowing my dad. And I said, Isn't that cool? There's two of them. <laughs> I really and truly believed that there were two of them, and my mom was one of them, and this lady was the other one. You talk about green coming to this program. I knew nothing. And I thought, wow, of all places, we're going to hear somebody just like my mom. And the other thing that I remember from that evening is that way on the other side of this big room, they had some special tables set up, and there were all these teenagers milling around. And I said, what's, there? what's up with that? And someone said, oh, they're Alateens. And I thought that meant, like, little alcoholics. <laughs> and they said, no, 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 sissy. No, honey. Those are the teenage relatives of alcoholics, and you're going to start Alateen Tuesday night. And I said, yes, ma'am. I was so afraid to not do what you told me to do. I thought somebody was going to come and take my mom's sobriety. I thought you'd take it back. And I would have done anything in the world for her to be sober. We went home that night. We left Tuscaloosa, went back to Bessemer, pulled up in that parking lot, and these people said, okay, get back in your car and go home. 
I mean, you talk about direction. We needed direction. <laughs> and they said, and we'll see you Tuesday night. We were like, okay. And we got home that night. For the first time in my life, we, the drapes were open. The front door, we left it open. Because we didn't care if you looked in and saw the four of us. We wanted you to look in and see the four of us. And my mother went into the kitchen. She had not been home for 38 days. She went into the kitchen and she got half a gallon of milk and some chocolate chip cookies. And she came back into the living room. And the four of us sat in that living room floor and just looked at each other. We just looked at each other and we agreed that we didn't know what those people had down there, but we wanted in on it. And we were going to do anything we had to do to be a part of what they had, to get what they had, because it was that powerful. And the four of us just kind of shook hands on it and said hoorah and started our journey from that point on. And we've been doing that ever since. You know, for the first two years, I thought the first step in this program was get in the car. (laughs) People would call the house. (laughs) The phone would ring, and it would be somebody on the other phone, and they would say, when we pull up at such and such time and honk, get in the car. (laughs) And out we'd go. You know, we'd file out, and we'd get in the car, and we'd go somewhere. And we might go 30 miles here one night. We might go another direction here. And we, Saturday night, we may go down to Montgomery for a potluck or something. But we were always going somewhere. And we were always being told, get in the car. Get in the car. And you don't hear that enough today. Get in the car. But, but we, we survived on that. We survived on it. And things started changing in our family. Things started changing for the better. These four people that were living four different lives, going four different directions, started healing. Mike and I got immediately involved in Alateen. My father got involved in Al-Anon, and of course my mother in Alcoholics Anonymous. My teenage years, from 13, 14, 15, 16, all those years when I probably, when all of my friends were at football games and and hanging out in the Winn-Dixie parking lot and doing all these different things, I'm spending my weekends at potlucks and anniversaries and conventions. My Monday night consisted of a big book study that I attended with my parents. And I attended this big book study for one reason, and it's because I went to them one night and I said, y'all are always going to meetings. You're always going somewhere. And they said, well, get in the car. And I said, y'all are always sitting around talking about this blue book, this big book, this this thing that y'all are always having conversations about. And I said, and I don't know anything about it. And so they let me start attending the open big book study on Best Room Monday nights. And I would sit in on these meetings. And I'm old school. I want to tell you how I was raised in this thing. See, I had no discipline when I got to this program. I had zero discipline. My mother could tell me to sit down, and I would just keep running. I, had, I didn't know the word no. But a seasoned veteran could come up to me, and by quarter till eight before the meeting started, and, and would hand me 50 cents and say, all right, young'un, 
go get you something to drink, go to the little girl's room, and find somewhere to sit down. Yes, sir. And I would. And they'd say things like, Sissy, you can sit still for an hour. You ain't got to be up running. Yes, sir. Yes, ma'am. I learned things like yes, sir, and yes, ma'am in this program. Please and thank you. Not that my parents didn't try to teach me these things. I was just real resistant to learning them. I learned things like you get there early and you stay late. You know? I could empty ashtrays with the best of you long before I smoked. (laughs) I could make heck of a pot of coffee long before I drank coffee. Because the thing was, you get there and you get busy and you get involved. And it still works for me today. It still works for me today. And I learned things like when that meeting starts, you stay right where you are. Unless you're physically sick, sissy, you don't need to be up moving. And you know, I've sat through a lot of long meetings. (laughs) But I don't get up and move around. Because I was taught early on that there are certain things you do out of the respect of this program. You may not like, but you just do them. I learned that when the program calls, you jump in and say yes. You know? And all this time, we're still go- I'm still going to Alateen. I'm and the time comes that it's time for me to make the transition from Alateen into Al-Anon, and it's the most natural thing in the world for me. It's the most natural thing in the world. Uh, I had no problems at all making that transition. And several, maybe a year and a half, two years after I'd been out of Alateen as a member, my home group that I spent seven years in came back and asked what I sponsor that group. And to me, there's no higher honor in this program than working with the Alateens. That's just my opinion. But I think if you're privileged to work with those teenagers, um, then, then there's a real special place for, for us in heaven. Because um, Alateen saved my life. It saved my life. It saved my brother's life. And when I hear people today talk about how they need a challenge or they're bored, <laughs> I direct them to work with the Alateens. Because those kids are going to teach them something. Those kids are going to teach them something. So that was quite an honor to be asked to come back and sponsor the very group that I spent seven years in. It was quite a challenge. It was the hardest part of service work I've ever done in this program. The hardest, absolute hardest. And so, and like I said, we were getting better and better as a family. I was under the belief at this time that when you get in this program, it gets good and stays good. I really believe that. Because things were so good in my life. Uh, Mike had graduated high school. I'd graduated high school, getting ready to go to college. And I really believed, and there were a lot of people around in my, in, in my group and in my area that had the same kind of similar life, that things were good when they, things started getting good when they came in the program and they stayed good for a long time. And it was six years into this program that I carried that belief with me. Until, of course, you know, in 1988, we had that tragedy where the three policemen knocked on our front door to tell us that my brother had been hit and killed by a drunk driver. And, you know, that's just not in my plan. 
That's not the way it's supposed to happen. Because, you know, I kept questioning, what is it that I'm not, what part of this program am I not working? What, what part of this am I not doing? Yeah. What part of AA is my mom not working um, for this to happen? Um, because I, I kept thinking, if he'd have died in any other manner, it may have made it easier to accept. But in reality, it didn't. But I want to share with you a little things about a few things about that night and the power of this program. Those policemen knocked on the door at about midnight to tell us that Mike was dead. And I remember my father a few minutes later being in the kitchen on the telephone, and I could remember hearing him say, but I can't hang up, but I can't hang up. And I know today that he was talking to his sponsor on the telephone, and his sponsor was telling him, Bo, hang up the phone, because I can't come to you till you hang up the phone. And Alcoholics Anonymous and Al-Anon was at our house before our family was at our house. By the time our family got there, you were already there. And you stayed. You didn't just come and leave. You came and you stayed. And you didn't say, read page so-and-so, it'll get better. <laughs> you did, you know, the people in Alcoholics Anonymous, those ladies at the Bessemer Group, they made sure that my mother had a half a sandwich to eat. They made sure that she took a bath and that she got a half an hour's worth of rest. You know, they didn't say, we'll see you at the meeting Wednesday night. They stepped in and they did for us what we could not do for ourselves. The members of Al-Anon showed up, looked at my dad, and said, we will not allow you to get the shotgun and go even the score. Because it could have been done. It could have been done. And I know he was thinking about it. And Alanon said, no, we're not going to let you do that, Bo. And they sat with him and they stayed with him. The members of my Alatine group showed up and literally camped out on our front lawn. Made a campfire and they spent the night. And they said things like, we don't know what the answer is. We don't know what to tell you. We're just here. And I don't, you know, I've searched this earth far and wide, and I don't know of any other entity that has that kind of power, like Alcoholics Anonymous, Al-Anon, and Altine. It just ain't out there. We're the ones that's got it. It's that powerful. All three programs stood before me a month later when I had made the decision to quit college and stay at home and take care of Mom and Dad because I thought they needed me. They looked at me and said, no, that's our job. You're going back to school. And gave me the freedom to do that. And I was able to go and finish up my college education and know that mom and dad were going to be okay. And I finished up that college education, and I did something that I will always remember doing. I hope that I'll always remember doing it. You know, I told you earlier that I used to lie in bed and cry myself to sleep at night, pray that they'd get divorced, who would I live with. And I also said something pretty much on a routine basis, like, when I'm 18, I'm out of here. I'll never come back around these nuts again. 
And when I finished up college and was getting ready to graduate, I called the house and I said, you know, I sure do enjoy living with y'all. Can I move back home? And they said, come on. And I moved back home and I moved in with mom and dad and we started back in our routine of going to meetings together and doing the things that that we had a lot of fun doing uh, before I went away. While I was at college, I, I found a little Al-Anon group off, right off campus called the Shelby County Group that literally adopted me, and they became my home group for the, for the next few years that I was down there. But I moved back home, moved in with Mom and Dad, and, and like my dad says, I became self-supporting through my own contributions. I got that job, took them out to eat, celebrate, where they didn't have a drive through he was real proud of that. And we started having a lot of fun. We started making memories and having a lot of fun together, hanging out. Um, and I went to my mother one day and I said, Mom, I said, uh, you know, Mike's not here for me to ask all these questions that I don't know the answer to anymore, so I'm coming to you. And I said, but you know, there's got to be somebody out there for me. And I said, I, they, I'm just convinced that they've got to be within the walls of the program because these people out here on the outside that I've been dating just not going to cut it. <laughs> and she said, oh, sissy, there's somebody out there for you. God's just not through working on him yet. <laughs> and I thought, well, what's wrong with him? <laughs> Because God's taking a whole lot of time working with whoever, and uh, He's to let go of some of this. And so I started on my own little nightly. I would I would add an addendum to my prayers at night, and it went something like this. And you women in here will understand this. But it went something like this. And P.S. God, whoever it is you're working on, I'm just really not a big fan of ponytails. I don't like earrings. <laughs> And please, God, no children. I don't want this person to have any... Don't bring any children into this thing, please. Thank you. Okay. Sincerely. <laughs> and that's kind of how I would do it. And then walk into my life walks Bob Country, you know. Hey, Bob Country. And um, we'd known each other for a long time, and he finally figured it out. <laughs> so... But I got to tell you that the Bob, the Bob that's sitting here in front of you, is not the Bob that I married nine and a half years ago. He had a beautiful long hair and a ponytail. <laughs> beautiful. He had a real pretty earring <laughs> and two kids. <laughs> so you better watch what you pray for. <laughs> but you see, you know, what living, the power of living with an Al-Anon will do. <laughs> Ponytail and earring are gone. Still got the kids, but I couldn't do anything about that. <laughs> those kids, I got to tell you about those kids. We've got one that's that's fixing to turn 18 years old and start her freshman year of college <laughs> on a full scholarship after living she we had them every other weekend for the last 100 years 
and we were never able to get custody of them, but we've had them every other weekend and every summer, and so those kids know this program. They've been involved in this program. And despite the fact that she lives in what I believe is active behavior, she got a full scholarship to college. This kid's got a head on her. She's, she's going to be okay. We keep kidding her and telling her we're saving her a room in AA. Because um, she's just got those qualities. <laughs> she's, and she knows, we tell her, Kale, we're saving you a room in AA. She's like, I know. <laughs> Will is uh, fixing to be 15. And we're saving a, room for, a chair in the room in Al-Anon for him. Because Will never likes to see you down. <laughs> He's a caretaker. He's 15 years old, going into the ninth grade. And for the past two years, has been, um, of course, in middle school, but has been marching in the high school band. Heck of a little band player. Heck of a little clarinet player and can march like a fool. And makes makes good grades and just wants everybody to be happy, joyous, and free. And he grew up going to a lot of AA meetings with his dad. And his favorite part of the meeting would be somebody, you know, that when they would say, Hi, my name's so-and-so, and I'm an alcoholic. He would come home and he would just say that all day long. Hi, my name's so-and-so, and I'm an alcoholic. Fascinated with people that got chips to the point that we had to get him a few chips. <laughs> So that he had his chips, you know. And um, but those kids have been absolute blessings, absolute blessings. I want to I want to take just a minute and tell you because I know you get a kick out of it about the the actual wedding. That that family counselor that we had back in Hell Week. I stayed in touch with Howard over those years, even after we graduated. I stayed in touch with Howard. Howard's a member of this fellowship, and when Bob and I decided to get married, we could only think of one person that we would want to perform that ceremony because he's a he's a minister. And so we went to him and asked him to perform the ceremony. So we had Howard at the wedding. We had um, we decided to get married in the same church that my mom and dad got married at thirty something years ago, forty years ago, I don't know. Because we figured if it took for them it'd take for us. Yeah, you know, some good luck there. So we get married in a Baptist church with a preacher wearing a Catholic robe performing a Methodist ceremony. <laughs> and there's more of you guys there than there are family. And our families are just, they don't understand. You know, they just don't get it. And uh, my dad likes to, you know, we opened up the meeting with the serenity prayer, we closed with the Lord's Prayer. My dad likes to say we did everything at that wedding except pass the basket and give out chips. <laughs> And um, he wishes we'd pass the basket. <laughs> you know, so there, we, there, there's a lot of fun to be in this program. There, it's not all hard work, nose to the grindstone. There's, there's a lot of fun, and we do have fun in this thing. But moving right along, um, back in 1999, all my life I've had headaches. I always thought I gave headaches, but I've actually had them as long as I can remember. Severe, severe. 
take you out for the day kind of headaches. I almost dropped out of college because of it. And they never could find out what was going on with these headaches. Uh, they just treat the symptoms and you pretty much deal with it. And one day in, in May, around Memorial Day of 1999, my headaches started changing. And I called my doctor and I told him about that. He said, well, we need to get a picture, you know, what's going on up there. So they sent me for some tests. One thing leads to another, and they found this huge aneurysm on the base of my brain. And it's, it's, sitting on my, it's pressing on my optical nerve, and it's causing me to lose sight in my left eye. And I found this out in one day, and the way I found this out was the hospital that did the tests was the hospital at the time that I was working at. And they sent the results to the wrong doctor. They, sent, they didn't send the results to my doctor. They sent the results to a doctor there at the hospital that is a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. He's not my doctor. He's a good friend. He's a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I get on the elevator on this Friday in this hospital, and I happen to get on the same elevator with Bill. And he looks at me and he says, what are you doing here? And I said something like, chasing that almighty dollar. Of course, you know, you got to be here to work. And he said, honey, I just got some pictures across my desk. And what's inside your head? You don't need to be here. And he realized at that moment that he was telling me something I didn't know. Because I had never heard anything from my doctor. I know now because he never got the report. And when he said that, we just kind of looked at each other and collapsed. And I got to thinking about it later. I thought, you know, who better to hear information like that from than somebody close to you in this program? Because we knew exactly what to do. You know, we walked back up to my office. We, we, we cried. We freaked out. We shed some tears. And we got on the phone. You know, and started finding out what was going on. A week later, for the first time in my life, I'm a patient in the hospital facing brain surgery. Now, I'd broken bones in my life. I'd had some injuries, but I'd never been put to sleep. I'd never been a patient in the hospital and certainly never had surgery. And I'm facing the big one. But you know, I didn't have one bit of fear. I had zero fear. They didn't even have to give me anything the night before surgery to calm me down or help me sleep. I slept like a baby. I was real confident that they were going to take care of the problem. And the reason I know this is when I, I don't know how you go about doing it, but there's a certain way you have to find a brain surgeon when you're facing something like that. And somehow we got into that process real quick. And we spent two days interviewing and going to different brain surgeons. It was me and Bob and my mom. And uh, we get to this one up in Birmingham and he's real technical, real by the book, a lot of big words, a lot of things I didn't understand, totally unemotional. And I thought, I can't let this man do this to me. He has no feelings. He has no emotion. I left there and said, he, he won't work on me. We went to the next doctor's office. We walked in his office, and the very first sign you see hanging on the wall is something like, we believe the power of prayer and meditation is as important in healing is anything else involved? And I thought, wow, i got to see what this guy's about. But, I, you know, I had a preconceived notion in my head that all brain surgeons were kind of like this first guy. And so uh, we met with the, the 
founder of the practice or whatever, an elderly gentleman that day, and he basically looked at my test and he said, yeah, we can fix the problem. We can do this. You're a perfect candidate. I want you to come back tomorrow and meet the actual surgeon. I said, okay. Left there, and Bob looked at me, and he said, you know, honey, I just started this new job. He said, I'm fixing to have to take some time off to take care of you. He said, I can't go with you tomorrow. My mom looked at me, and she said, you know, sissy, I just started this new job. And she said, I'm fixing to take some time off to help you all. And she said, I can't go with you tomorrow. So I went home, and I looked at my dad, and I said, you're it. you got to go with me. So they wouldn't let me drive or do anything. Spend five minutes by myself. Afraid this thing might explode. And he said, no, I can't do it. I can't do it. And I realized what my dad was experiencing was, you know, he done lost one kid. He wasn't about to lose another. And the further he could stay away from it, I think the less he thought he'd be hurt. But I told him, I said, you know, you're going to have to go. Just drive me to the parking lot and I'll go in and take care of everything. And he said, I can do that. And as we got up to the hospital and went into the office, he said, oh, I think I'll just go in with you and sit in the waiting room. I said, okay. And so we made it to the waiting room, and when they called my name, he said, well, I'll go back there with you. Let me check this guy out, too. I said, okay. So me and my dad go back. And in walks this surgeon dressed in scrubs. Um, to me, he looked just like the guy that used to pitch for the Atlanta Braves, Greg Maddox. Looked just like him. Good-looking little thing. I thought, that's not what brain surgeons are supposed to look like. But anyway, we're sitting there, and we, we got through all the technical stuff and agreed that he was going to do the surgery. And he said, but I want to cover one thing before we finish up. And he looked at me, and he said, he said, Sissy, what's your, what's, what's your understanding of God? He said, what's your relationship with a God that you understand? And I just, I said, sir? And he said, because the reason I'm asking you is, he said, I can only do so much next week when we do surgery and then send you home. He said, and if you don't have a relationship with a God that you understand, and if, you, if that relationship's not very powerful and strong, he said, then you're not going to have a real good recovery. He said, because a lot of your recovery is going to draw from that relationship. He said, so let's sit here for a little while and talk about God and the relationship that we have with God. And this man's not in the program. But i got a brain surgeon that's got a relationship with a God that he understands. <laughs> and for the next hour and a half, my brain surgeon and my dad and I sat in this office and we talked about God's love and we talked about God's will and we talked about the power of having that relationship. And that's why a week later when they did that surgery on me, I had absolutely no fear. Absolutely no fear. Now, I'm not advocating for any of you that need a spiritual experience to go out there and line up anything like brain surgery. But it was probably the most spiritual experience I've ever had. I've ever had. He told me I'd be in the hospital 14 days. And they did surgery on a Tuesday morning. And on Saturday, he came to my room and he said, You're not sick enough to be in my hospital anymore. I'm sending you home. And he said, And take them with you. Because <laughs> y'all were there. And you were all over the place. 
drinking a lot of coffee and ordering a lot of pizzas. He said, and take them with you. And and I and I did, and I went home, and and it's just like when we came into this program, you were there, and you were able to do things for us that we were not able to do for ourselves, you know. And you didn't call and say, read page such and such. <laughs> you knew I couldn't drive for three months, and you called and said, when I pull up and honk the horn, get in the car. <laughs> yeah. And that that is that is absolutely. Unbel- it's, it's, I should stop saying it's unbelievable because it is so believable to me. It is so powerful. And we got through that with the help of AA, Al-Anon, and Alateen. We got through that. And the end result of that today is, yes, they were able to fix that problem. They found another problem, but they're able to treat it. And so each, each day I have to accept the fact that I'm not going to be 100%. And then I have limits. And then I have to stop when I've reached that limit, you know. And I had to I had to take three years and go back to work and figure that out. That, sissy, you're just not going to be able to do this, you know. And then I had to accept the fact that uh, I'm going to have to do something else for a while and take care of me. And that's where I am today. I don't work. Uh, and I'm a real good patient to the doctors that I see, you know. I told him, made the promise, if y'all be a good doctor, I'll be a real good patient. I follow instructions well, you know, and I let them do that. And, and I, again, it goes back to the fact that when you get into this program, it doesn't get good and stay good. It gets good. It gets a little better. It may even get real, real good. But reality is life happens, you know, and life happens to me on a real regular basis. As <laughs> it wasn't two years after that. Bob was having some what we thought was some back pain, and we went to the doctor to have that checked out, only to find out that he had a tumor that was just absolutely encapsulating his kidney. And the only way to get rid of that tumor was to give up the kidney. And so we're sitting there one day in another doctor's office being told, this is what you need to do. And we immediately went home, and we prayed about it, and we got on the phone to the people in the program, and once again, you showed up. You know, and you continue to do these things, and we continue to experience life on a daily basis. You know, and it's not all—it's not all bad. I hadn't won the lottery yet, but I certainly would take the quality of life I have today at this moment versus anything that I had prior to getting here. You know, I'll take this any day because on the big picture, I don't have any problems. I don't have any problems at all. I'm in a real good space. And I'm a firm believer that if I just keep doing the next right thing and putting one foot in front of the other, it's all going to be okay. You know, Whether I like it or not, it's all going to work out. It's all going to be okay. We moved from that little town of Hueytown uh, about eight years ago. My parents decided now that I was married, they didn't want that big house. I wasn't there anymore. They wanted to move out to the country buy some property and build a house. And we said, that's fine, but you're taking us with you. (laughs) And so they did. We bought some property. We put it all in one pot. We bought some property. We built two houses, and we live on what we call Serenity Hill (laughs) in West Blockton, Alabama. And there's one blinking caution light in this town. There's no East Blockton. There's no South Blockton. There's no Blockton, but there's West Blockton. (laughs) 
And um, and if, if, if it happens to be a day that we don't particularly call it Serenity Hill, we'll call it the Sober Farm. Because there's always somebody down there from one of the programs doing something. Doing something. You know? Um, my husband's real active in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous with his 14 years. And he's always got uh, fellows down there from the halfway house that need a good home-cooked meal. Uh, that need to sit down with an Al-Anon member and hear about the family side. To hear what their mother or their sister or their wife is going through. So we've always got some kind of activity going on down at good old Serenity Hill. Uh, people ask, what do you do, sissy? Well, I'm the mother of two beautiful beagles. And they run, and they're spoiled rotten, and they do whatever they want to do. And um, and Sissy's okay with that today. And Dad calls them Alipups. <laughs> calls them the Alipups. And they run and they do whatever they want to do. They have complete roam of that hill. And uh, I'd, we'd take them with us if we could everywhere we went. But um, but we've got a real good life. And I wouldn't have that if it wasn't for this program. I make a conscious decision every day when I get up. Uh, to be a part of this thing. It takes a lot of work. It takes a lot of effort. But the payoff is you get to go to things like this and party for two or three days. <laughs> or you go back to the real world on Monday, you know? Um, so if you're new here and you're not sure whether or not you want to keep coming back, just do. Just like I, just get in the car and just go to the next <laughs> meeting. Just go to the next meeting because it's going to get better. And like, they used to, like those seasoned veterans used to tell me down in Bessemer all the time, they'd say, has anybody told you today they love you? And before I could answer, they'd say, well, keep coming back. Maybe they will tomorrow. <laughs> and I'd think, ah, you know, one of these days I'm going I'm to be that quick. I'm going to be just like y'all. I want to close by reading one paragraph out of my favorite uh, reading, Al-Anon Daily Reading. It's from Courage to Change, but it pretty much sums up uh, where Sissy is. It's on page 95. It's April the 4th. It says, My life has changed. I heard someone in Al-Anon say that when they open their eyes in the morning, they also open their ears. Now as I awaken, I listen for the birds. I choose not to review my plans for the day until I've had breakfast. I prefer to take my time to appreciate my favorite part of the day. Al-Anon is helping me to clear my mind of my burdens so that I'm able to enjoy the wonder of the moment. I'm beginning to enjoy a childlike awe about the splendor of nature, to see the beauty all around me and to let my face break into a smile spontaneously, to laugh, to love, and to live again. Today I can say, good morning, God, instead of good God, it's morning. Thank you and God bless you.